few scattered Wednesday nights throughout the fall, we have been uh, considering what I've called missing books, namely books of the Bible from which in all these 10 years I've never yet preached once uh, during my time here. So we've looked at Lamentations and Ezekiel and Zephaniah and Ecclesiastes, and tonight we're going to turn to the book of First Chronicles. First Chronicles, another of the books that we've never yet looked at on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, and we'll turn to the ninth chapter. So First Chronicles 9, and we'll begin reading in just a few minutes in verse 17. The book of uh, First Chronicles and its sequel, Second Chronicles, as their names uh, suggest, comprise a two-part chronicle, a two-part historical record of the kingdom of Israel, her kings, her priests, her wars, her successes, her failures, and so on, beginning with King Saul and David and Solomon, all the way down to the Jewish exile in Babylon, and to the very point where they are ready in the book of Ezra to return. And this long chronicle of Jewish history begins in First Chronicles chapter 1 with a genealogy. In fact, if you've ever read the book of First Chronicles yourself, you will remember that perhaps, you'll remember anyway, that the first nine chapters of this book are wholly given over to tracing out the various branches of Abraham's family tree, beginning with Adam and to Abraham and then the 12 tribes and to the various clans within those tribes as well. It can make for somewhat painstaking reading if you come to First Chronicles in your consecutive trek through the Bible. These first nine chapters can be difficult. Nevertheless, uh, they are in the Bible, aren't they? They are inspired by God, and so this genealogy in First Chronicles 1 through 9 is here for a reason, breathed out by God for a reason. And so there are blessings, evidently, to be had even in these difficult, slow chapters if we'll take time to read them. And one of the blessings, it seems to me, is found here in chapter 9 where I've invited you to turn because as part of his genealogical record, the chronicler here lists various men and their families who, verse 22, were chosen to be gatekeepers in the house of God. And I want to read this part of the genealogy to you, the gatekeepers, beginning in verse 17, and then I'll tell you why I find it to be so helpful. First Chronicles 9:17. Now the gatekeepers were Shalom and Akub and Talman and Ahiman and their relatives, Shalom the chief being stationed until now at the king's gate to the east. These were the gatekeepers for the camp of the sons of Levi. Shalom the son of Korah, the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, and his relatives of his father's house, the Korahites, were over the work of service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent, and their fathers had been over the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was ruler over them previously, and the Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshelamiah, was gatekeeper of the entrance of the tent of meeting. All these who were chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds were 212. These were enrolled by genealogy in their villages, whom David and Samuel the seer appointed in their office of trust. So they and their sons had charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, even the house of of the tent as guards. The gatekeepers were on the four sides to the east, west, 
north and south. Their relatives in their villages were to come in every seven days from time to time to be with them. For the four chief gatekeepers, who were Levites, were in an office of trust and were over the chambers and over the treasuries in the house of God. They spent the night around the house of God because the watch was committed to them, and they were in charge of opening it morning by morning. Now some of them had charge of the utensils of service, for they counted them when they brought them in and when they took them out. Some of them also were appointed over the furniture and over all the utensils of the sanctuary and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the frankincense and the spices. Some of the sons of the priests prepared the mixing of the spices. Mattathiah, one of the Levites, who was firstborn of Shalom the Korahite, had the responsibility over the things which were baked in pans. Some of their relatives of the sons of the Kohathites were over the showbread to prepare it every Sabbath. Father, uh, this perhaps sounds like a strange and unusual passage for us to turn to, and it is one of those uh, hidden gems in the Bible, but tonight I pray that you would show us that it's not just hidden, but that it is a gem, a jewel, a blessing, if we can extract from it uh, what you say to your church today. So speak to us from this unusual passage of Scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom, Akub, Talman, Ahiman, and their relatives All these, verse 22, were chosen to be gatekeepers in the house of God, in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And that's the key text tonight. All of these were chosen to be gatekeepers. And I want to think about that with you. The first key word, uh, obviously, perhaps, is gatekeepers. All of these were gatekeepers. In other words, this is not a passage about the people who had, quote, important jobs in the temple. This is not about the priests. This is not about the Israelite kings. This is not a passage even about the prophets who had such an important role among God's people. This is a passage simply about a group of folks who were charged in those days with opening and closing the gates in the Old Testament tabernacle morning and evening, and as we read with various other related seemingly minor tasks in the tabernacle as well. And the reason I find their family records and their job descriptions so intriguing and helpful is because they sound a lot to me like the servant ministry roster for which some of you have recently signed up, which the deacons and elders will ask you to approve this Sunday. In one column here, if we can picture it, we have a list of names. Shalom, Akub, Zechariah, and so on down through the passage. All of them classed under this broad heading of gatekeepers. And in the, in the other column, we have a list of all sorts of jobs that they were assigned to perform. Some of them were literally to open the gates in the morning. We read some of them, verse 26, were custodians of the offerings that were brought into the house of God. Some of them, verse 28, had charge of the utensils that were used in the sacrifices. Verse 29, some of them were also appointed over the furniture. Verse 30, some of the sons of the priests prepared the mixing of the spices. Verse 31, Mattathiah, one of the Levites, who was the firstborn of Shalom, the Korahite, had the responsibility over the things which were baked in pans. And then there were others who baked bread, verse 32, 
every Sabbath. Doesn't that sound something like the list that we compile every time around this year? Uh, or every year around this time, I should say? The list that we've been gathering recently? I think it does. All of these people with their various roles among God's family. Now, it's true that the Old Testament tabernacle was in many ways different from the New Testament church, and we could take time if we had it to consider those ways, but there are some ways in which the two are very similar, the tabernacle of old, the church of today. And we're seeing one of the similarities here in this passage tonight, namely that it took a great many different hands to perform all the works of service that were vital in the tabernacle, just as it takes a great deal many different hands to perform all the various roles that are vital in the local church. Do you see the similarity? The church needs all sorts of people, not just the leaders, but all sorts of shalooms and akubs and talmans and so on who have their various roles and who perform them well. And so the church, just like the tabernacle of old, we might say needs Levites, people who have a spirit to serve, people who are willing to open the doors when the worshipers arrive, people who are willing to prepare the various items that are needed for worship, people who are willing to prepare food that is to be eaten and count the money and so on. There's a striking similarity, I think, between them and us. And here's something else that's similar between Old and New Testament worship. These various Levite hands that performed all these different necessary tasks were not the most noticeable hands in the grand drama of public worship. Had you been there in the tabernacle, you would not have left remembering these guys. In fact, when you think of the great servants of God in the Old Testament, who comes to mind? Maybe Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, Daniel, Jonah, and so on. Maybe you even think of some of the lesser-known characters that we've considered, Barzillai, who brought food to David in the wilderness, or Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian man who padded the ropes and pulled Jeremiah out of the pit, or Jael, the woman who put the tent peg through the enemy captain's head. There's all sorts of people in the Old Testament that might come to our minds when we think of the heroes, of the people that we want to emulate, but we probably don't think very often about Shalom and Akub and Talman and Ahiman and their sons. We probably don't think very often about the good folks who simply got up every day and opened the doors in the tabernacle and baked the bread for worship and cleaned the various utensils and laid them out for the priests to use. In fact, even if you were to call up in your mind's eye the tabernacle itself and to meditate on all that took place in that wonderful tent of meeting, you probably still wouldn't think of these who were chosen as gatekeepers. You'd think of the animals whose blood was spilt as a sacrifice for sin. You'd think of the worshipers who brought them in needing God's mercy. You would think of the priests who offered them on the altars and prayed for the people. But you would probably scarcely notice the little family in the background carrying utensils and bread in through the side door. And I want to say to you that that's often how it is in the church. Most people, when they leave church on Sunday morning, remember the songs that were sung and perhaps the people who sang them. They remember the lesson that was taught and the teacher who brought it, the sermon that was preached, and the preacher who gave it. 
But very few of us go home on Sunday and say, boy, am I ever grateful for that couple who greeted me at the door today. We don't go home and think to ourselves, boy, I'm so thankful for whoever it was that vacuumed the carpet or whoever paid the electric bill so that the heat was on and whoever it is that prepares the, the, the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper. We don't think about those people, do we? They just do their jobs in the background and no one notices. And I'm not necessarily saying that we should go home and think about all these things. We, we should mainly think about what we heard from God and what we said back to God. That's paramount, right? And because hearing from God and speaking back to God is paramount when we gather, all of these other roles to which many of us are called, necessary as they may be, can often seem like very small tasks, very unnoticed tasks, even perhaps thankless tasks. And I'm sure that Shalom and Akub and Talman and Ahiman and their sons here probably some days didn't feel like their jobs were very important at all, especially not compared to the priesthood and the men who were actually handling the spiritual things. And yet without the gatekeepers and the cooks and the dishwashers and so on, the priest and his sons could never have done their jobs to their fullest usefulness. Just as a, for instance, picture one of these priests trying to minister uh, the sacrifices that point us to Jesus without the help of these quote-unquote gatekeepers and all the things that they did. So you come into the temple to bring your lamb, and there's the priest waiting for you. He's going to offer up your sin offering, and he looks over onto his side table, and he doesn't have a clean knife. And so he has to look around and scurry around and he goes into the back room so that he can wash a knife himself and bring it out while you wait and then he slaughters the animal and puts it on the altar and he realizes that the fire is not stoked and he doesn't have the utensils to stoke the fire and he has to go again looking for that that would never do would it a tabernacle would have been a chaotic mess and worship would have been distracted and ragtag without the good folks who washed the dishes and opened the gates and paid the bills and brought the priest all the things that he needed. And so God designed it exactly that way, each in his place. And the same is true concerning New Testament worship and the greeters and the grounds workers and the ushers and the custodians and the nursery crew and the decorators and the offering counters and the audiovisual workers and the meals coordinators and all the people who make what we do on Sundays and Wednesdays actually go smoothly. We want to leave worship on Sundays remembering the word of God that was spoken to us and the words that we spoke back to him, right? But without those good folks who take care of the gatekeeping details, what we would remember instead would be crying babies or cold air or dirty floors or confusion about the song lyrics, etc. I hope you see what I'm saying. If we are to do the main work of the church well, if we are to preach God's word and praise his name as we ought, then all of these gatekeeping jobs have to be done well too. Indeed, these seemingly minor roles in the Old Testament were important enough to the functionality of Old Testament gospel ministry in the tabernacle that God saw fit to list these guys' names and their jobs in the Bible. I find that fascinating. Of all the names that God could list and did list, he listed these guys who worked behind the scenes and in the background. And I hope that as we finish out 2012 and 
look forward to 2013. That gives you a new sense of dignity and importance in your role in this church, no matter how small you may feel it to be. All of these, verse 22, were chosen to be gatekeepers, to do work behind the scenes just like many of you do. And their roles were more valuable to the worship of God's people than perhaps they realized, just like yours are. That's the first thing I want you to notice this evening. Your role is valuable. We cannot be, we cannot worship as we ought without our version of the gatekeepers, all the people who do these jobs. But now let me give you two more reasons why such people, why such gatekeepers should hold their heads high and should do whatever their hands find to do with all their might. Not only was the role of a gatekeeper vitally important, and not only does it remain so, but also notice still in verse 22 that these men and their families were chosen to be gatekeepers. We talked about who the gatekeepers were and why they were important, but now notice that they were chosen to be gatekeepers. That's what verse 22 says, isn't it? This is a passage about people who were hand picked for these jobs. In other words, it wasn't that Shalom and Akub and a few of their friends simply showed up at the tabernacle one day and said, hey, priest, we have some free time and we'd like to sign up to help out in some way. That would have been good for them to do and right and admirable. I'm always thankful when people show up and say, hey, what can I do around the church? But As good as that is, as important as that is, the service that's described here in chapter 9 is even more weighty than that. These men and their families were not mere volunteers. These were men and their families who had been hand-selected, chosen as gatekeepers, chosen for these particular jobs. Chosen by whom? Who chose Akub and Talman and Zechariah and the others to be these gatekeepers? Well, there's an obvious answer as we read on there in verse 22. All these who were chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds were 212. These were enrolled by genealogy in their villages, whom David and Samuel, the seer, appointed in their office of trust. David and Samuel appointed them. David and Samuel are the ones who chose these people as gatekeepers. And that would have been no small thing to these men. David and Samuel were their two great leaders. David was the king of God's people. And Samuel was the prophet who had anointed David as the king. And then we think, having been selected by these men, how much of a big deal would that have been? For David himself and Samuel himself to say, you four men and your families, you all are going to have this particular job. It would have been a huge deal, a huge uh, honor, a huge responsibility. Indeed, save having been appointed by God himself, nothing could have been weightier for these men or come with more responsibility for them than to be handpicked by the leaders of God's people, by men whom God himself had set apart to make such decisions for the family of God. And I submit to you that if you are preparing to fulfill a servant ministry role in 2013, if you have chosen to be one of our gatekeepers, you find yourself in much the same position. The New Testament church, of course, doesn't have kings and prophets who make these sorts of appointments, but she does still have leaders. 
given by God, doesn't she? The New Testament church doesn't have kings and prophets, but she has elders and deacons, people who are put in place by God to lead God's people. And I submit to you that it's a weighty thing. It's an honor. It's a great responsibility if you are chosen to be gatekeepers by those men. Not because we are in any way of the caliber of David or of Samuel, but because like David and Samuel, God has put the shepherd's staff in our hands to guide the sheep of his pasture. So these six men, your elders and your deacons, are men who care about you. Men who care about God's church, who want what's best both for your growth and for the advancement of God's kingdom in this place. And with those interests in mind, they have chosen you for whatever specific role it is to which you'll be called, Lord willing, this Sunday. I hope that feels to you like a great privilege. These men, after God's own heart, have thought about you They've thought about your gifts and your capabilities and the needs of God's church, and they've chosen you to be a gatekeeper in some form or fashion in this place. I say again that aside from having been appointed by God himself, nothing could be a greater privilege or a greater responsibility than to have God's shepherds place their hand upon you and their approbation upon you and say, we have chosen you for this job. But now let me say that I believe verse 22 also indicates that, in fact, these various gatekeepers were chosen by God himself. Yes, in the immediate context, we're told that David and Samuel were the ones who did the appointing. But I think the strong wording of verse 22 surely indicates that God was in back of David and Samuel choosing whom they would choose. All these were chosen to be gatekeepers by the Lord himself. And that's true of you as well. Each of you, whether you're assigned to the nursery or the front doors or the sound booth or the choir loft or the Sunday school class, is chosen not simply because of the men who shepherd this flock, but by God himself for that role. God has looked down at our church. He's looked at you. He's looked at your gifts. He's looked at our needs. And he has determined that you would be the person to serve at that particular gate. And the other person would be the person to serve at that gate. Isn't that astonishing? That God himself is looking at you and he is choosing to put you exactly where he wills. All these All these, I think we can say, just as was said of these men here, all of these were chosen to be gatekeepers by God. And again, I say, I hope that fact adds a sense of dignity and a sense of weight to what you are called to do. You may not have the most noticeable role in the church. It may not feel to you like the most vital job, but you have been chosen to be a doorkeeper, a gatekeeper of some kind by God himself. He notices your work. He will reward it if you do it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. He is the one who has appointed you. And the fact that we're doing our work for God and not just for other people ought also to urge us to do it well. To do it well. We've already mentioned how important our various roles are to other people. The teachers and the preachers and the singers who minister God's word to us cannot lead us nearly as well if your particular gate isn't well cared for. 
and the other worshipers around you, if your gate is left hanging open and unkempt, will leave worship remembering what was done poorly or what was done not at all instead of what was said to and by the Lord. So there's a horizontal motivation to perform your servant ministry role well, to be on time, to be prepared, not to skip your Sunday. But there's also, I'm now saying, a vertical motivation. You're not just serving others, you're chosen by God. You've not just been chosen by your leaders, your fellow church members, to serve at such and such a gate, but you have actually been chosen also by God himself. And that means you have all the more reason to serve with all your might. Even if your particular job seems to have no effect for good or for bad on the rest of the congregation, God is watching to see how you'll do it and whether you'll do it for him. And even if you think someone else could do your particular role better than you can, God's chosen you to be the gatekeeper in that particular area. And you need to take his assignment and fulfill it with zeal and with joy. All these, and many of your names are on there, all these were chosen to be gatekeepers. And that fills your role, whatever it may be, with honor and with great responsibility. It is a privilege to be chosen to be gatekeepers in the house of God. And let me give you a third reason why this role of gatekeeper was so dignified. Not only did these men perform a valuable service for their fellow worshipers so that worship was far better because they did their jobs well, and not only were they working on an even higher plane for God himself, but also their tasks, however much in the background they may have been, were important because of where they served. Because of where they served. And again, here, just keep your eyes fixed on verse 22 and the word gatekeepers. At first blush, as we've already said at length, that doesn't sound like it would be a very spiritual or great or important job. But it was indeed an important job and precisely because of the particular gates which these men were keeping. That's the key, really. These men were not assigned to keep the gates that opened into their various towns and villages across the Israeli countryside. Verse 22 doesn't refer to the gates of their own personal sheep pens or cattle stalls or vegetable gardens. It's probably true that these men did work at those kinds of gates as well. After all, we learn in verse 25 that except for the four chiefs, the four clan chiefs, the rest of them did not do this for a full-time job. They would come to Jerusalem, verse 25, from their other secular work and serve a seven-day stint, we're told, from time to time in the house of God, and then they would return to their normal routine. They were just like all of you in some ways. They were lay people who had other gates to take care of besides just those at the house of God, and yet who were chosen to come in at the appointed times and serve well. Secular people with secular jobs who came in and served in the house of God. Now, when history remembers them, which is it going to remember? Well, what does history remember? History does not remember what these men did for their personal secular employment, does it? We're not told anything about that. But what we are told is this part-time 
deal that they did at the gates in the house of God. And I find that very instructive. I think it's the same for each one of us. When God recorded these men's names in his book, as he does here in 1 Chronicles 9, he does not record their secular feats or successes or their careers, but the service that they rendered in his own house for the sake of the gospel. That's how they're remembered. Not for their careers, not for their larger calling, but for their calling in the house of God. I find that fascinating. Now, make no mistake, these men were not just serving in a religious work. They were serving for the sake of the gospel, just like you and I are, even in the Old Testament. That's what they were doing. They weren't just performing a duty because it was what they were supposed to do. They were serving, if their hearts were right, for the sake of the gospel. The gates that they were opening morning by morning were opened so that men and women could come to God and bring through those gates the lambs that would be sacrificed and the blood that would be shed as atonement for their sins. That's why they opened the gates so that these gospel sacrifices could take place. That's why they cleaned and polished and laid out the utensils for the priests, because those were the utensils that they used for making the sacrifices. And the priests whose ministry they supported, whose hands they lifted up, were the ones who made the sacrifices and who taught the people about God's forgiveness. And even the bread that the women baked was a portrait of Christ who would come as bread sent down from heaven to give life to the world. The Old Testament tabernacle and then temple that replaced it was one grand visual gospel sermon. Every bleat of the sheep, every garment of the priests, every piece of furniture, every stitch of embroidery, every drop of blood in that tabernacle cried out like a preacher from his pulpit that the wages of sin is death, but that God has made a way that sinners might have life. That's what the tabernacle was all about. And these gatekeepers, though they weren't the ones offering the sacrifices, though they weren't the ones praying the prayers of forgiveness over the people, though they weren't speaking God's word to the masses, though they weren't offering incense on the altar, these gatekeepers, though they weren't giving the visual sermons, the gospel sermons themselves, were the ones who made those sermons possible. They were doing gospel work when they opened those doors and mixed those spices and washed those knives and brought the priests fresh pans and so on. And so are you. Whatever the gate is that you may be keeping, whatever the job is for which you have been chosen, you're not just making the wheels of the church go round. It's far more than that. Because the church, like the tabernacle of old, is the great instrument of God in our world by which the gospel goes forth. That's what the church is about. And it doesn't just happen from this pulpit. It happens in the Sunday school classrooms. It happens on our website. It happens through leaflets that you give out. It happens through young men that we've sent out to train for ministry. It happens through missionaries that we support. It happens by each of you helped as you are by what you discover here, going out to share Christ at work or school or the ball game or the neighborhood or whatever it may be. In all of these ways and more, the gospel is sounding forth from us. This church and every Christian church is designed by God to be like a little gospel engine. And every drop of energy that you give to make that engine go in all of those different directions is gospel work. 
For instance, well, let me just say this. You may not think that. You may think, well, I'm just washing the nursery. Or I'm just collecting the offering and so on. So let me just give you some for instances that will give you vision for the work that you have. Who knows, ladies, but that you're watching the nursery may not be freeing some young mother up to get something out of the Sunday school class or the sermon that she wouldn't get if she had her children with her that she will then share with some lost friend or family member. And who knows if that little nugget that she gets and is able to share will not be what God uses to bring that friend or that neighbor into paradise. And it happened in part because a nursery worker was willing to do her less than glamorous part. And because a Sunday school teacher did his or her level best at preparing the lesson to make it as useful as possible. Or to use another example... Maybe some of you literally are gatekeepers, doorkeepers in God's house. You stand at those doors on Sunday morning and open them and close them and greet the people as they come in. Seems like a rather mundane job, but could it be that one Sunday morning your welcome and your smile and your help getting some visitor to the right places will be what God uses to encourage that visitor to come back for the second time? And what if the second time is the day of salvation for him or her? What if the second visit is the one where the gospel really clicks and he or she believes and is saved? Well, then your warmth and your help at the front door in that instance would not just be a nice gesture, but it would be a breadcrumb laid out on the narrow road that leads to life, without which that man or woman may never have found the narrow gate. And entered into the kingdom. We could go on and on with illustrations like this, could we not? And more than all the particular what ifs that we could give, the fact is that even if you are never able to connect the dots between your particular service and some individual who came to Christ because of it, your role in the church, whatever it is, makes the church stronger, which makes us a better gospel witness, and that can't help but have eternal ramifications, even if you never saw how your cog fit in the engine. God has designed the church as a gospel engine, and he wouldn't assign gatekeepers and ushers and nursery workers and so on unless their work had some vital purpose in running the engine. You may open up the hood of your car like me, and have no idea what all those hunks of metal and black rubber tubes and electrical wires are there for. And you may look at them and think, some of these probably don't do anything at all. I could just pluck this right out and drive down the road and be fine. And you may actually do that sometime and think, well, see, that didn't do anything at all. But soon, soon the little light will come on and soon something will happen and you will realize that piece was vital. The guy who built this engine had a reason for putting that there, and the engine won't work properly without it. And that's the way it is with every part in the church, with every gatekeeper's role that God assigns in his house. It's there for a reason. You're there for a gospel reason. In fact, in eternity, I think we may be surprised to see just how much 
God made use of our various little jobs to expand the population of heaven. Our little jobs may look to us like one of those wires in the car about whose purpose we haven't a clue, but we'll someday see why God had us at that particular gate, in that particular role, at that particular time, ever how small it may have seemed to us then. I think we may also be surprised someday at just how much more God is interested in the faithful role that we play in his church than in all the other perhaps more impressive gates that we may have swung open or closed in the secular world. That's what we find when we read God's record of Shalom and Akub and Talman and their families, isn't it? These men, as I said, all but these chief clan chiefs, these other 208 men, had other jobs. And I want to suggest to you, based on what I read here that they did in the tabernacle, their other jobs, their day jobs, their secular jobs, probably required a great deal more skill of them and were probably a tad more glamorous than what they did in the tabernacle. How exciting is it to open and close gates, to wash dishes in the temple, to count money as people put it in the box? Surely the other things that they were doing seemed much more significant, seemed like they were making much more of a difference in the world. But when God wrote these men's names down in his book, he didn't write about that other stuff. He wrote down about them closing the gates and washing the dishes and counting the money at the church. That's what he took note of, and I think it will be the same for us. What will matter in heaven, what the Father will have written in his books about us, is not how successful we were in the world or how fulfilling we felt our lives were, but what we did, whether great or small, to get out that word that the wages of sin is death, but that God, through the blood of the Lamb, has made a way for sinners to have life. I don't mean to suggest that By my giving a sermon about our servant ministry roles within the church, I don't mean to suggest that Sundays and Wednesdays are the only times that you can make a gospel difference or that all we need to do is open the gates and watch the nurseries and count the offerings and wash the dishes and so on and all will be well. All the gatekeeping in the world won't lead anyone to Christ if someone doesn't speak the news, right? And sometimes you must watch the gates so that someone else can speak. And other times, you must look for and take opportunities to speak for Christ yourself. So I'm not suggesting that you simply do what these men did and never open your mouths, not at all. In fact, this is one reason among several why, though it ought not to be the most important thing in your life, and it won't be the thing that God congratulates you first when you get to heaven, your secular work does matter greatly to the Lord. He's placed you in that workplace to speak on Jesus' behalf and to adorn the message that you speak with your example of love and of godliness. And my goal with all this talk about what you do and I do within the church is not to minimize all of those gospel opportunities that God will give you on the outside. Indeed, as I've tried to illustrate, one of the reasons why we need to serve well in the church is so that we will be equipped in the church to go outside and to share with the world. And yet the focus of this sermon has been on what happens within the church, hasn't it? My primary goal has been to show you that your role here 
the role that you're about to begin or begin again in January matters greatly, even if it seems small or insignificant to you. These doorkeepers are included in God's eternal record book because their roles were that important. God set them apart, yes, to wash dishes and to count money and to bake bread and to open doors. But he did that because every one of those jobs, because it was done in the house of the Lord, where the gospel goes forth, had eternal ramifications. And the same thing is true for every name and for every job that's on this list. So, whatever your role in God's house Consider it your highest privilege that it could be said of you, he or she was chosen to be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord.